turn with me in the back of the Blue Psalter hymnal to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 14. That's question and answers 35 and 36. It's behind the songs in the back of the Blue Psalter, question, questions and answers 35 and 36 of the Catechism. As we continue along in the section of the Catechism that is expositing or explaining for us the meaning of the various lines in the Apostles' Creed. We said that creed earlier in our worship, so you'll recognize uh, the line quoted in the question. I'll ask you that question and let's respond together with the answers. What does it mean that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? That the eternal Son of God who is and remains true and eternal God, took to Himself, through the working of the Holy Spirit, from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a truly human nature, so that He might become David's true descendant in all things like us His brothers, except for sin. And how does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? Well, He is our mediator. And with his innocence and perfect holiness, he removes from God's sight my sin, mine, since I was conceived. Of course, the Catechism is a tool that helps us to understand the Word of God, which tonight we will read from Hebrews chapter 2. And if you'd like to follow along from the Bibles in the benches... Hebrews chapter 2 is found on page 1863. Hebrews chapter 2. This tonight is God's holy word to us. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. And God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. It is not angels... That he, it is not to the angels that He has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor, and put everything under his feet. Now in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers 
And in the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children that God has given me. And since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and dear friends, Let's just take a moment to review the basic truth about who Jesus Christ is as it pertains to Him coming into the world. It's simple in a sense, but some people get distracted and confused when they think about it. Look at the answer to question 35. We believe that the eternal Son of God, that is Jesus, and we spoke last week of what that means that He was eternally the Son, but the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to Himself, through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a truly human nature. So just get the main points clear in your head. Jesus is true eternal God. He always has been. Nobody ever created Jesus. He always was, right? He is the eternal Son of God. At a certain point in time, He took to Himself also a human nature. So Jesus, at the Incarnation, became something that He wasn't before. He had always been, and He remained, and He will always remain, true, eternal God. But at the Incarnation, He also took to Himself a true human nature, and so He became the God-man. 100% God, as He had always been, as He always will be, and 100% true man. Just like you and me. He had a true human body and soul. Something that he did not have before he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. Alright, the other thing to keep clear in your mind is that what happened after he lived his life on earth and after he died and rose from the dead? Did he just go back to heaven and become God again and not man anymore? No. He always was true God all throughout eternity past and eternity future. And when he went back to be with the Father, he is still and always will be true God and true man. So let's just keep that clear in our heads. Now, to many of us, of course, that's second nature. I mean, this is the one that we worship. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is glorious. He is our mediator. We talked about him being true God and true man and the necessity of all that earlier in the catechism. And we're not going to review all of that tonight. The specific question that I want to answer tonight is... According to Hebrews chapter 2, according to the living and active Word of God, what are the implications for us tonight who are hearing the Lord Jesus, the God-man proclaimed, what does it mean, so what in other words, that Jesus is true God and true man? What does it mean for us tonight who are living 
in or worshiping tonight in Ontario, California, in this local congregation, what does the incarnation of the Lord Jesus have to do with us? Let's apply the glorious incarnation of the Lord Jesus to our lives. What is the practical application of Christ being the God-man coming into the world uh, to us tonight? And Hebrews chapter 2 will lead us in six things that the incarnation means for us sitting here tonight. This is what it means. This is why it matters that Jesus became the God-man to us. It's not just some abstract theological truth, but it has meaning and purpose and implications for us tonight. Here are the six things that it tells us. Look in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 2. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation, the one that is announced by the Lord and confirmed by those who heard Him, and testified to by God through signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. People of God, the author of the Hebrews is writing to Christian people in a Christian church who say that they are following the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course they're living in a time after Jesus has come into the world, just like you are. And the author of the Hebrews, whoever it is, compares the time period before Jesus came and the time period in which the people in Hebrews are living and the time period in which we live after Jesus came. And he says, I want you to think about one significant difference and its implication for you. He says, I want you to think back to the Old Testament and how God was speaking through the prophets. And you remember that He gave His law through Moses to the Israelite people. But where did Moses get the law from? Well, other places in the Scripture, it says that the angels were mediating. So God would give His law to angels who would deliver them to Moses, and Moses would give His laws to the people. And what kind of laws did Moses give to the people? Well, He gave them very clear prescriptions about how they should live, didn't He? And attached to those laws were also the punishments or the rewards that people would receive for obeying or disobeying, right? And some of those things were very outwardly severe, that is the punishments, right? I mean, if you obey me, you will be blessed. But if you disobey me, you will be cursed. And what kind of curses would fall upon the Old Testament people of God when they disobeyed His law? Well, it could be something as, as local and maybe insignificant to the whole community as somebody getting stoned. An actual person could receive in their body the punishment of their sin against God if they sinned against Him, didn't they? Or it could be something as grand and outwardly affecting the whole community as God bringing in a foreign army to punish that nation for their disobedience when Israel disobeyed the laws, right? These are outward displays of God exercising His power to say that He is very serious about sin and that you people in the Old Testament who are hearing my voice and I am proclaiming my truths to you, you better believe me and you better follow my ways or I am going to pour out on you horrific earthly judgments. I mean, can you imagine living in that day where for your sins not only would you be rebuked by the elders of the church, but you would be brought up by the magistrate and perhaps even executed for your sin against the Lord. Imagine if the church or the state 
And I want to be clear, the church and the state are not called to do this today, but imagine if today the church and the state were to prosecute people for false religion and idolatry. I mean, there would be a lot of people getting put to death, right? And that's what was happening in the Old Testament. I mean, the people of God would wage a holy war against idolaters. Now, the church is not called to that ethic today. Uh, But I want you to think about how severe uh, these outward punishments were to the people of God in the Old Testament. Now, the author of Hebrews says, it's not like that today. However, if God so severely punished outwardly those who were disobedient to Him in the Old Testament before Jesus Christ Himself came into the world once He has come into the world how do we think that if we would reject Him we would not receive ultimately a greater punishment than they received this is what He says in verse 1 we must pay more careful attention than the Israelites did of old, therefore to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Because if even back then, before the fullness and the glory of the Lord entered Himself into history, before the fullness of salvation came down into history itself, by the way, if you, you notice that language in the first four verses, look in verse 3. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Well, in the Old Testament, God was preaching the gospel to those people too, right? He was doing it through types and shadows, and they were saved in the same way that we're saved. They would put their faith and trust in the promise of Christ who was coming. We put our faith and trust in Christ who has already come. And it's not saying that there's two different ways of salvation, but it's saying that the substance of our salvation and the substance of the salvation of the Old Testament saints has now broken down into history. And we see things more clearly, even, than they did of old. So the logic is, obviously, because Jesus has become incarnate, it is all the more urgent that we take the Christian faith seriously. It is not popular today, is it? For religion, for our faith, for our thoughts about God, and our duties even before Him, to take primary importance in life. We live in a very wealthy culture. Pray less. Play more. Be lazy. Be entertained. Don't trouble yourself with the difficult, tough religious questions. Why? Because they don't really matter, right? And the incarnation of Jesus Christ has happened, and so we say because it has happened, it is all the more urgent that everyone sitting here tonight would make the first priority in their life their obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ in their faith and in their actions. We must pay more careful attention because Jesus has come. He has spoken very clearly to us. And there are all kinds of excuses that people use to neglect their growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our own congregation is no exception. People are distracted and drawn away by all sorts of things. But this, our life before Christ, is the most important thing. That is what the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ means in the first place tonight for all of us. The second, if you've become lazy, or if you've made Christ second fiddle in your life, then repent, because it is urgent. Think of the punishment that came upon those 
who neglected Christ even before He came. It would even be worse for us. There's a second thing. There's a second implication or a practical application for us of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. It's found in verses 5 through 8. Look at verse 5. It is not to angels that He has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Who is verses 5 through 8 talking about? Who is the Son of Man in verse 6? Who is the Him that is made a little lower than the angels in verse 7? Who is the one who is crowned with glory and honor in verse 7? Who is the one who has everything put under His feet? And then the end of verse 8, In putting everything under Him, God left nothing that is not subject to Him. Who is Him? It's not Jesus. It's you. It's not Jesus, it's you. It is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. What are we thinking about here? What is the world to come about which we are speaking? Look in verse 7. It's that glorious world. It is the glorified new heavens and the new earth. That is the world that is coming. And who is the one, who are the ones who inherit the glorified new heavens and the new earth, who has everything in subjection to them. Well, it's those who have been chosen by grace and saved by God's grace to receive the glory that Christ has earned for them. There is a place. It is amazing, isn't it? That, that God would look at us as His creatures. What is man that He is mindful of us? And the Son of Man that He would care for us. You say, well, why are you making it plural? Because just like many times, the a whole human race is comprehended through one man, right? We're all understood through our first father, Adam. All of us as the people of God are understood through our second father, if you would, the Lord Jesus Christ who obeyed for us. And we here, the author of the Hebrews is drawing our minds to the picture of the glory which Christ has earned for us. The implication of Christ becoming incarnate is that He earned glory for us and that the glorification is our future. You see, Christ came into the world to help us reach glory. To reverse the curse of the fallen creation. To rid ourselves, and we've seen this through the gospel over and over again. To rid us of all of the futility and the frustration of the fallen world. To rid us of all of the exasperation that we sense when our work doesn't go smoothly. When things don't always work out the way that they should in the end. All of our loneliness and frustration and futility and vanity that we see. And dissatisfaction and never quite feeling ultimately fulfilled even when we're happy and joyful. You see, this is your future, however. The world to come, the glorious world to come is yours because Jesus came to live and die for you. I want you to live like this. 
I mean, if Jesus came to help you, to bring you into glory, the glorification which is coming, then I want you to live like that. The author of the Hebrews would say. You know, I want you to live like your hope goes beyond this world. I want you to live with that joyful expectation that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back for you. And that you will not be left forgotten in the grave. And that one day you will be satisfied and you have dignity because this is your end. This is what the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ means for us. There's something else. Look at the second half of the end of verse 8 there. Yet at present, this is the third thing, yet at present we do not see everything subject to Him, right? Because right now we don't see everything subject to us. We still live with vanity and frustration, right? But we see what? We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. And in bringing many sons to glory, which He is doing, right? It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ means for you that you can learn to appreciate living in the fallen world before the glorification and not live in utter despair. Because you see that Christ suffered the same pattern that you are now suffering before He was glorified. You see the logic here? It was impossible for us to be brought to glory except that Jesus would first suffer. Verse 10, In bringing many sons to glory, that's us, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, Jesus suffered in order to gain our glory. So we are able to look now at what Jesus did. He suffered before He received His glory and honor, which He now has. And therefore we are able to appreciate and not expect that everything is going to be rosy in this life. I mean, as much as Christians say, right, that they know our hope is not in this life, and our hope is in the life to come, and I look forward to heaven, and then I look forward to the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth, right? As much as we say that, how often is it when we actually face a trial in our lives, we face the frustration and the futility of this cursed world, that we act and think as if it's not even true. That we didn't expect that we were going to suffer. I mean, you should not be characterized as a Christian, as someone who cannot understand that you are going to suffer now. As if, you know, something must be completely wrong in the world and wrong with everybody else in the church around me and maybe something's wrong with me and my faith that I'm suffering. No. You can grow to appreciate that your calling as a child of God is to suffer after the pattern of the incarnate Christ, the one who humiliated himself by coming into the world, setting aside his glory in many ways, the one who was persecuted by the people that he himself made, the rebels against him. See, we as the people of God ought to be able to face our suffering and say, It makes sense. And that I am not going to lose heart. 
And I am not going to be characterized by discouragement and despair and dragging everybody else down with me when I am suffering. Because this is what it means to be a Christian. We suffer now, we have the privilege to suffer now after the pattern of Christ so that we will be glorified later. We as Christians should not live with a chip on our shoulder all the time. Because we are only suffering after the pattern of Christ who suffered for us so that we will receive the glories that are, that are coming. And then only if everybody was as righteous and holy as I was. And I wouldn't be going through all this, right? Everybody just saw everything as clearly as I did. But I wouldn't be going through all this. Well, you have the privilege of suffering in this life after the pattern of Christ. Because that's what He did for you. That's what it means for you tonight. There's a fourth thing the Incarnation means to us. The Incarnation is proof that God had chosen to save you from before the foundation of the world. God has had His eye on saving you from eternity past. We see that from verse 11. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Now what does that mean? Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. That means in the mind of God, before Jesus ever came into the world, He viewed you and He viewed me as one of His precious ones, one of the same family with the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that basis, Jesus came into the world to save you. See, it's not that you become only the family of God after you are saved. I mean, in one sense that's true. But the basis of that happening is that you were in God's eye from before the foundation of the world. And the proof of that is, what follows after in verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation I will sing your praises. Now when did Jesus say that? Did Jesus say that after He came? No. This is actually a quote from Psalm 22. A prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ who was going to come into the world. And though the psalmist is the one who spoke the words, where did the words come from? Well, they come from the Lord Jesus Christ in the glorious mind of God from all of eternity. He is the one who has said to the Father, I will declare your name, Father, to my brothers, you and me. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor Him. This is Psalm 22. Revere Him, all you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden His face from Him, but He has listened to His cry for help. Jesus knew what He was coming into the world to do. He had it in His mind to come and get you from before the foundation of the world. That's the agreement He made with the Father. When you think of baby Jesus being born into the womb. That is proof that God loves you from even before you were born. It's another quote in, in verse 13. And it's from Isaiah chapter 8. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in Him. Here I am and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. The interesting thing about that quote in Isaiah chapter 8 is... That's a prophecy of the thoughts of the Lord Jesus as He comes into the world, right? But that prophecy, if you check the context, almost comes out of nowhere. 
I mean, it like breaks in on the section and all of a sudden somebody is speaking. You think, who is speaking? Where does that come from? And it's Jesus speaking about his trusting the Lord to come and and do the redemptive work that God sends him into the world to do and he fulfills that work and so he says to the Father, here am I and the children God has given me. And when you see that Jesus has become incarnate,